And we are live from the Empire of Lies, a Friday edition of a show that brings you free speech and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration and is pretty wasted today. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. We've done a great episode of The Backstory today on a historic news day. Would you say that, Rod? Would you say this is a, is a historic day? Yeah, I'd say it's two consecutive historic days, so yeah. Yeah, this day, the big news is obviously Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. As I didn't think we'd have any surprises. I think I said yesterday that I thought it would come down today. Did I say that, Rod? Yeah, you were right about that, Lee. You were right about that. Yeah, because I was predicting no surprises here, and we got none. But we do have sort of, I would say the reaction is somewhat muted. We'll play Joe Biden's comments, but we'll be talking about that and other stuff. It's also a day when I woke up, the news all over the mainstream media before Roe versus Wade broke was that Ukraine is suffering a big military defeat in Donbass. Severodonetsk has fallen essentially to Russia. And I was hearing that on NPR, on Fox News, on Deutsche Welle. Did you hear that on the mainstream news today, Rod? Yeah, I saw alerts, I think late last night, that they, uh, the Ukrainian military was retreating and you know, it was a big blow. It was a big blow, but you know it was very quiet because I only got one alert for that, so it wasn't all of the mainstream media. Uh, so only, I think the AP was the only one I got the alert from. Well, we've also been saying that for days that that is coming, and it's not a surprise. But it's interesting that the media is admitting that as we're going into a weekend that the G7 starts in Germany. Joe Biden will be there, and. What's weird is, well, we'll talk about it, the reaction is they're admitting military defeat, but not really admitting it. So we have three great guests today. In the first segment, in the first hour, we have Mindy Gavicelli, my boss, and he's in Georgia. Right, Rod? He's in Tbilisi? That's correct. And we'll be talking about something weird that happened last night, which was the EU was supposed to admit for consideration, it's really nothing, but Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. And when I woke up this morning, there was nothing about Georgia. And Rod and I were talking about it, right, Rod? I talked to you about it. I, I couldn't figure out what the hell happened to Georgia. And you had trouble finding it too, right? Yeah, but uh, after we spoke, uh, I guess the update, I guess if you want to call it an update, they've given them pers- perspective status. Yes, which means that they kind of snubbed them. Alexander McCorris used the word snubbed, and we'll talk to Mindy about that. And it's an interesting situation. Over in Tbilisi, it's like a mini Maidan. Did you get that sense? Like 60,000 people protesting in the streets, like a mini version of when Ukraine was saying, we want to be into the EU. And I have a question, 
that maybe media can answer for the people of Georgia. Do you know anything about history? Because that didn't work out particularly well for Ukraine. Do you agree, Rod? Oh, yeah, 100%, Lee. Uh, I heard reports that uh, up to 100,000, so it's anywhere between 60 to 100,000 people. So that, you know, that's a lot of people. What is next for them? Are the people going to be in the streets in Georgia protesting for the ability to date Amber Heard? Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it seems like they pick things with a bad track record and say, we want that. But we'll talk about that. I don't think they're protesting to date Amber Heard. They're not that crazy. Right, Rod? Yeah, they don't want to step in that poop leaf. Right. Good, good point. Then, at the bottom of the hour, a brand new guest for me, but she's been on a show before. When I was in the hospital, she was on with Manila. M. Reese Everson attorney and uh, interesting person. She was with the Congressional Black Caucus and then she ended up suing for sexual harassment, right, Rod? That's correctly. And so we'll be talking about what she thinks about the Roe versus Wade decision in the Supreme Court. She's an esquire. She's an attorney. So and obviously an independent thinker. So we'll be talking to Emery Reese Everson. And then at the end of the show, our good friend and great way to end the week, Tyler Nixon. Tyler always brings it. I always say that, but it's true. And so it will be fun. And so have you, I, I don't know if you're paying attention to where abortion, because it's still legal in much of the country. So let me ask you, Rod, do you know, can you guess, is abortion still legal in Colorado, where Tyler Nixon lives? Colorado, legal or not legal? I believe I saw a map a couple of hours ago, and I think Colorado's still legal. That's right. And that's somewhat, if it had gone illegal, would that surprise you? Um, not necessarily, because you know people think of the cities of major st- of, of states and think that the city represents the state. But like Tyler says, uh, Colorado's a, a red state, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be too surprised. Now, also, did you see the first state that officially declared abortion to be illegal was Missouri? Did yeah, the show me state. The show me state. Yeah. What well, well, kind of? Missouri is a weird state to me because St. Louis is very much a Midwestern state, a city, right? St. Louis, Missouri is, I, I consider it part of the Midwest. Am I wrong? Uh, no, I think you're right, but some, yeah, no, you're right, you're right, you're right about that. It's on the cusp, like, sort of. Ohio's in a weird way, sort of like that. But we'll talk about that and more coming up on the backstory. Now, of course, the big, and I say historic, here's the thing I think about Roe versus Wade being overturned by the court. It's sort of surreal to me because everyone's talking about it like it's this big historic thing. And it is. And I said that. Undoubtedly, 
Roe versus Wade has been part of American jurisprudence for 50 years. But does Rod, practically, does it feel like all that much is different? Does it feel that way? Does it feel like a different country now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned? Uh, in my opinion, no, not necessarily. But it just they just made it more difficult for women uh, who want to get an abortion. And, you know, if you're in a state where um, it's now illegal, like Missouri or Texas, I believe, uh, we're way more restrictive. You have to travel. So it's just uh, just more difficult now. It's just not necessarily like there's no abortion. It's just more difficult. Right. That That's it. And I didn't have an abortion schedule this weekend. Did you run? No, no, absolutely not. So unless you had an abortion scheduled, you know what I'm getting at? It doesn't really affect your weekend plans. Does that make sense? Right, exactly. And it's just it's just a small win for the pro. Well, I'm not going to say a small win, but it's just a win for the uh, pro-life movement. And, you know, like, like I said, it's not a major, you know, like there's no abortion. It's just It's just more difficult. And if I did have an abortion planned, I would have been given a heads up by the leaker. We still don't know who the leaker is, but I have my guess. And I have my guess that her name is Sotomayor. That's a guess. It's a conspiracy theory, but I have a guess. And uh, if I if I was planning to get an abortion this weekend, I would have been planning. I would have put aside a couple of bucks for travel. Because I knew this decision was coming because we were warned by it by leaker. So that's I think the leak had. I'm not sure what the point of the leak was. Now that this has happened. The leak did not stop the abortion decision. Right, Rod. So what was the ultimate impact of the leak, in your opinion, Rod from Philly? Our interpreter, my sir. opinion. My yes. opinion, Lee, I think the leak was to set up what we might possibly see this weekend or maybe further down the line this summer of riots. And I mean, we already had so many, uh, what do you call them, uh, pro-life uh, pro-life buildings around the country that have been burned that have, uh, by arson. The news isn't really covering that. You barely get any coverage. They just say, oh, arson happened here. And it was a you know whatever the building, and then they keep on moving. It's not the news cycle. There's been like 26 arsons uh, of, of, of these places. But we saw, and, and we saw an assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice, and barely media coverage on that. But I think this, to me, the Supreme Court decision was a little anticlimactic. Do you see what I'm saying, Ron? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was expected, so I don't, you know, what was the big hoopla? hoopla? It, it was already expected a couple a couple months ago. Now, do we have Mindy on the line, Command Central? Okay, so let's go to a short break now, Rod. Let's relax, and I'm going to drink some, some coffee. And we'll talk to Mindy Gavashley in Georgia, in Tbilisi, about what's going on with the EU and whether the U.S. is behind this move, because obviously they are, right? Would you guess, if you had a guess, would you guess the U.S. is behind this move, Rod? 
Oh yeah, for sure. The, the U.S. has some type of culpability in this, without a doubt. So we'll see if our suspicion is correct. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Mindy Gavishelli from Georgia on the backstory. backstory and now let's go to Eastern Europe and the country of Georgia with our special correspondent I've given him that job Rod he's now special correspondent how's that sound pretty good our special correspondent Mindia Gavishelli from Georgia he's in Tbilisi the capital right Mindia yes I am and I'm super excited about the promotional thank you Lee yes yes Congratulations. I'll, I'll send you a badge. So, Mindia, first off, when I, I told Rod, when I went to bed last night, what I was seeing for headlines was the EU may accept for consideration Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia. That's what the headline last night. Now, when I wake up this morning, they say they granted it to Moldova and Ukraine. And we'll talk about that. But Georgia was nowhere to be found. So I was confused by it. And then I heard Alexander McCurse today say Georgia was snubbed. So before we get to that, for people who don't know much about Georgia, describe how big Georgia is in terms of population and geography. Because I don't think most people know. Do you agree? Most people know nothing about Georgia. Uh, it used to be that way, but, you know, I find that more and more people actually know something about Georgia these days. But nevertheless, you're right, we have to put it there on the map. Uh, it's a country of about four and a half million people, and it's situated between Turkey, Russia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus. And uh, throughout the history, uh, many people called it the edge of empires because it's always been on the edge of the Ottoman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Russian Empire. So the Georgians have always been at the crossroad of civilizations. And actually, you can feel it right now. Uh, here too, because it's amazing how many people from all around the world come here. I was flying here, uh, since there's no direct flight from DC, I was flying through Dubai and there was a ton of people from all over the Middle East on the flight, which amazed me. Uh, but also when you come here, there's so many Russian tourists here that you hear and see them everywhere. Uh, and there are also lots of people from countries like Iran. For example, I bumped into Iranian bikers in one of the major squares of Tbilisi uh, today, and it creates this crazy mix of cultures, and when people in Tbilisi talk to each other, they normally speak in at least three languages, so they mixed words from at least three languages altogether. It might be Georgian, English, Russian, or 
a Russian, Armenian, and Persian, or uh, Turkish, Georgian, and Kurdish, for example. So it's it, it, it's absolutely fantastic, and it it creates this really really interesting mix of peoples, cultures, and attitudes. Now I'm really shallow, but does it affect the cuisine? Because I'm always curious about the food, and I can imagine with that many influences, you get some mixes of cuisines, correct? Oh, yeah. The food is, like, I personally think that the food is the best in the world. Because, indeed, it it has influences from all over the world, but also it's, uh, well, for once, it's a birthplace of wine. Uh, the oldest wineries found on this planet were found here in Georgia, 8,000 years old. So it tells you something. And wine is a form of religion here. Georgians are mad about their wine. And you can see wineries all over the country, and wine is being sold everywhere. So, you know, if someone likes to eat and drink, Tbilisi is the place to go. I can tell you that. Now, in continuing a shallow thing, I'm curious, do they use the wine to cook as well as, like in French cuisine, wine is used to cook, or do they just drink the wine? Oh, no. they Not not only they cook lots of things with wine. For example, this morning, I went down uh, for breakfast in the hotel, and for the first time in my life, I faced cheese soaked in wine. So it was left in wine for a while, and then, you know, they just give it to you for breakfast. And I was like, well, 7 a.m. feels like a little early for that, but I can't refuse it. I'm going to try it. And it was fantastic. But also in Tbilisi, you can actually go and order baths in wine. So that's something, too. <laughs> Yum. So, so that's a great food report. So what is the relationship like with Erdogan now? What is Georgia's relationship like with their neighbors in Turkey or Turgia, as whatever it's called now? Turkey is one of the major investors in Georgia. And you can see Turkish influence uh, in lots of places. Uh, For example, there's a whole street in Tbilisi where you can find exclusively Turkish, Arabic, and Persian cafes and restaurants, hookah bars and all that. Uh, And like I said, there's a lot of people from the Middle East coming here as tourists. And not just as tourists, actually. I need to correct myself because today I was with a friend in a uh, public services hall and there are people from all over the world opening their businesses here, and many of them come from Turkey. So restaurants, cafes, um, you know, all kinds of business hotels, all kinds of businesses uh, are seen there, and there's a lot of Turkish influence. Now, I've seen uh, on Twitter and other places some video of these demonstrations in Georgia, and it's, I, I described it, it looked like a mini Maidan in that the demonstrations seem to be people demonstrating about, I saw it described as about 50,000 
in the square wanting to join the EU, specifically saying we want to be part of the EU. So what's the reality, Mindy? What are you seeing on the ground there? I was at one of those rallies today, and uh, I cannot say for being within the crowd itself, you can't tell how many people were there, but it suddenly felt like a huge crowd, a lot of people. And the idea of joining the EU indeed is very popular in Georgia. According to the polls, uh, about 85% of people here want to join the EU. That's why when the European Commission announced that it will not be recommending Georgia uh, to be granted the candidate status, obviously uh, it was disappointing for many people. And today they came uh, to the parliament building to demand uh, Georgia being granted that status. The difference is, however, in who they blame for that step. Because if you are supporting the governing party, party, then you think that the EU is punishing Georgia for not opening a second front against Russia. And if you are supporting the opposition, you think that the government of Georgia is not doing enough uh, to be considered a decent candidate uh, for the EU membership status. So that's the main difference in attitudes. But people who, and there were people from both sides today at that square uh, in front of the parliament. Uh, and uh, that's the fault line, if you will, within the Georgian society, because some people want to get that status no matter what, but the majority of people are actually really wary of having another conflict with Russia and really don't want to provoke another war. And that's the official position of the government of Georgia. And also, I'm trying to figure out why the Georgian people, I guess, I understand that if they have this idealized view of what Europe is, but how it's worked out practically, the metaphor I made earlier, if someone said, do you want to date this pretty girl? And people said, sure, yes. And then I said, it's Amber Heard. It's a different answer than at that point. Don't they see that, in fact, while Europe may look good, does that make sense? On the ideally, you want to be part of Europe. Being part of the EU isn't working out well for a lot of Europeans. Do, do the people have any sense of that, or do they have this naive and somewhat idealistic view of Europe? Both. But you need to understand that Georgians are very practical people, and they understand that Georgia is a very poor country, despite despite you know many tourists coming and so on, and the recent COVID um, pandemic obviously heavily influenced Georgia and its economy. Now it's reviving, but still, Belize is a very lovely place, but Georgia remains a very poor country. And they understand that if they join the EU, the Europeans would have to pour a lot of money 
into Georgia. And that's the hope, because this is what happened in Eastern Europe, where countries like Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, they received a lot of kind of a lot of money from Brussels at the expense of Germany, France, Britain, which was a part of the EU back at the time, and so go on. So Georgians are hoping that the same might be the case here. They are hoping that the EU, if it eventually accepts the country into the Union, will pour a lot of money into Georgia to bring it up to the European standards. That's why the idea of joining the EU is so popular. Now, is there a lot of is there hostility towards Russia in Georgia, or do they take a more balanced view of Russia? Uh, again, it depends who you talk to, because, uh, like I said, there's a lot of Russian tourists. They are very much safe here. They enjoy the country a lot. I spoke with some of them today, and they absolutely love being here. Uh, but at the same time, Georgia have fought uh, an absolutely disastrous war with Russia in 2008 and lost it. And after that, Russia recognized 20% of the Georgian territory as independent states, its breakaway republics as independent states. So clearly, Georgia does not see eye to eye with Russia on that issue. But like I said, the current government is trying really hard to avoid another conflict with Russia, understanding that the path to development lays through, uh, through the peace. And they're trying really hard to avoid another war. Uh, if you remember, the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian officials were openly uh, urging the Georgian government to open the second front against Russia, which caused an absolute outrage in the government here. And the position was, we will never do that again. We said that we want to reincorporate those territories through peaceful negotiations, and we will never start another war. And actually, that position was supported by the opposition as well. So there's a wild, widespread consensus that Georgia needs to avoid another war by any co by any cost. Now Ukraine and Moldova being accepted for consideration in the EU, and it's just beginning of what will be a long process. Some people say it may take ten years if it happens, but that was called by Emmanuel Macron a political gesture. Is is essentially meaningless. So, are what's the path forward for Georgia, and if they are they seeing anything in Moldova and Ukraine being considered being a political gesture? What what do you think is ahead for the EU and Georgia, Amelia? Well, the Georgian Prime Minister Rakhle Gurebashvili said today that this is a very unfair decision because Georgia is way ahead of those countries in terms of implementing uh, many reforms and bringing up local laws up to EU standards. So, of course, he feels disappointed and, of course, he feels let down. And I can confirm to you, again, I, I mentioned that I was in a uh, 
public services hall today. I witnessed how within an hour, a friend of mine got everything she needed to get a passport. So she had her uh, photo taken. He, she had her uh, data taken. She had all the paperwork uh, completed, even though there's no paperwork. It's all electronic. Uh, her biometric data was collected as well. And within an hour, she was free to go. It's amazing because even in most of European countries, forget about the U.S., imagine our DMVs or, God forbid, social security services. Like, you can come and do everything within an hour. It's just not happening, right? Uh, in Georgia, it is a norm, and it's the way it works. It's not just getting a new passport. It's receiving uh, business, license, business licenses or licenses of all kinds, whatever you need. They, the country prouds itself on being very efficient, and government services are much better than, let's say, the European bureaucracy. But So obviously they, they, they feel let down by this decision. But at the same time, the government played it smart. They said that, uh, okay, there are 12 demands from the European Union that we need to work on okay, we think that we can have it done within six months, so by the end of the year, we think that we will be ready uh, to be accepted as a candidate country. Well, we'll see if it works, because I honestly have my doubts, because number one condition uh, by the EU was to overcome the political polarization in the society. Well, good luck with that, because it takes two to dance, and it's not just government that has to overcome it, but, but the opposition as well. And right now, the opposition is clearly trying to take advantage of this decision and press the government to resign. Great report. So let's take a, a, a short break on the show. Great report. Our special correspondent, Mina Gavishelli. Thanks so much. And enjoy your wine-soaked cheese on the rest of the trip. Mindia. Great report, and we'll stay tuned to what happens with the EU and these and Ukraine, because even the situation with Ukraine, will there be Ukraine to join Europe? Let's see. According to what happened militarily today, I'm skeptical. Well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, Emery Severson on the backstory. Backstory and on the radio in the Empire of Lies at 105.5 FM, AM 1390. So, Command Central, let me know when Emery Severson is there. Thank you, sir. So, Rod, did you hear our, our segment with wine soaked cheese eating correspondent Mindy Gavishelli? Yeah, of course I did. Sounds pretty good, too. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd be for wine early in the morning. Now, it seems to me like the EU thing, he explained it well, I thought, 
But it seems to me like you've heard of, of course, of get rich quick schemes, right? You know, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. Do this, read this book, and you'll get rich quick. And that goes better for people. You sell more copies of a book, for instance, if you say get rich quick, then you say if you read this book, you'll be able to work hard. And eventually, you might make a decent living. Am I right? Get rich quick sounds better. Right. And it seems to me, a lot of people in Georgia are looking at the EU as you'll get rich quick, right? Like if we just joined the EU, we're moving on up to a deluxe apartment. You see what I'm saying? Or the Beverly Hillbills equivalent of the Jefferson thing. But in fact, the way it worked out for Europe, the way it worked out for Ukraine was it was it was like shoots and ladders. It was their shoot to the bottom, the poorest country in Europe. Am I wrong in thinking that's what happened in Europe when they hooked up with the EU? They did not get rich quick. They got poor fairly quickly. Yeah, that's what happened in Ukraine. Yeah, it's exactly what happened to them. They became one of the most corrupt and now one of the poorest countries in, in Europe. And in a sense, Russia does, seems to me, they don't sell get rich quick. Russia doesn't make promises. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, they, I, don't, I don't think they, I don't think I've ever seen anything come out of Russia like that. Russia tends not to overpromise and underdeliver. They just don't make the promises, right? So they don't say, if you join with us, you'll get rich quick. And because of that, I think it, in a sense, hurts them. But on the other hand, they don't get people with unrealistic expectations. And I think this is one thing about this. You know, a lot of the West, I said, they're starting to acknowledge Ukraine's military defeat. But do you know what the Western media does, the U.S. and U.K. media? They'll say, well, Russia's not taking Donbass as quickly as they said. They, they, they'll say, for instance, you've heard that over and over. They said they're not taking Donbass as quickly as they said. Have you seen that, Rod? Yeah, I've seen multiple ways in different uh, forms that they've tried to uh, represent why Donbass hasn't been hasn't been taken yet. Except what they can never point to is where Russia said we'll take Donbass by May 9th or whatever. They never say that. Russia doesn't make promises. Russia just wins the war. Do you see what I'm saying? They don't make promises. They just increase people's salaries. Have you seen that? Russia has is making so much money that they just did. If you work for Russian state, they just gave you a raise all across Russia. And they didn't overpromise it. They just did it. Did you see that, Rod? No, actually, that's a uh, that's news to me, Lee. Uh, I know we, we've talked about uh, 
one of our guests, I can't remember which one exactly, but that, you know, inflation's so low in Russia compared to here in America and other parts of Europe. That's right. And a lot of these things. And meanwhile, Joe Biden still blames Putin for it, for all the problems. And even Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, said, well, actually, gas prices were already up significantly before the war. So let me point out part of the lies of the United States. Part of what Biden started to do, he started to say, gas prices went up since Russia signaled aggression. You see the trick there, Rod? By saying since Russia signaled aggression and allows them to say, well, started wars in February, but they started signaling aggression a couple of years ago. You see what I'm saying? And so they get to backdate it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Lee. They're able to play that trick on uh, the general public's minds, but a lot of people aren't falling for it. And a lot of, you know, we even had uh, Jerome Powell, you know, talk about inflation was happening way before. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine or the military operation in Ukraine. So, you know, Biden and his lackeys come out and say it, but then other people, other people and other, you know, at the Fed and other economists come out and, and contradict everything that they say about the economy. That's right. And and they overhype everything. And that's why I say today is a kind of surreal day, because in did you say see Chuck Schumer talk about Roe v. Wade being overturned? I miss Chuck Sumer. I saw Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, and AOC talk about, you know, take to the streets, and Maxine Waters talk about that, uh, that especially black women should be able to have uh, the rights over their body. So, you know, she's, she's in effect talking about vaccine mandates, even though she doesn't know it. Well, I saw something from Alyssa Milano, noted political thinker, Alyssa Milano. I saw something from her that she said, do you know who this is going to affect harshly? According to political philosopher Alyssa Milano, Roe v. Wade being Uh, overturned, the LGBTQA whatever community. So if you're gay, you're going to be hit especially hard by Roe versus Wade. What? (laughs) Am I missing something about biology there, Rod? Uh, Lee, you know... I don't. I don't even know how to respond to that because you know, I guess two men who who get together and have a civil marriage or whatever. Uh, I guess now they can't have kids. So, or two women who get together. I guess they can't have kids either. So, let I don't know. A, I don't let me know make a statement. I can't speak for the lesbians, although I'd like to. But let me speak for the gay men. For some reason, if you're gay and you're a man, and you were interested in adopting children. Roe v. Wade being overturned is a godsend. Go with me here, Rod, and see if I'm right. This will increase the number of adoptions, right? It should doesn't correct. Make, doesn't it make sense to increase the number of babies? I don't want to sound like they're on the open market, but available. And I got this. My friend Andrew Breitbart was adopted, and he said he thought if he'd been conceived post Roe versus Wade, he likely would have been aborted. 
So it seems to me like if you're a gay man looking to adopt a baby, you'll have more choices. There's more adoptions after Roe v. Wade versus overturned. So what am I doing math there? How am I getting the math wrong there, Rod? No, I, I think you're definitely right about that, Lee. Now, I also saw a, I don't know if you saw it, but a, uh, a, young, a young woman, I think she was like 18 or 19, who, uh, because of the restrictions in Texas, had to give birth to her twins. And the media was pretty much making it seem like she gave birth to, you know, like two creatures or something. Like, oh my God, she had to give birth to these twins, babies, you know, because of the restrictions. So, you know, a lot of people are, are there are going to be more children available for adoption. No, and I, the reason I say I'm not speaking for the lesbians is, as you know, women with wombs, you know, the old-fashioned kind, are baby-making machines on their own, right? All you need to do, if you've got a couple, two women, all they need to do is get some sperm. And trust me, ladies, in case you haven't figured this out that yet, that's not that hard to get. Am I right, Rod? If they really want sperm, they can just ask men and they can probably get it pretty easily. Is that your experience, Rod? <laughs> uh, no comment on that. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, a lot of men do go to sperm banks to uh, get money. So, um, you know, I guess if you just offer directly to the man, like, hey, you know, can you help us? I'm pretty sure they would happily oblige. Or if you offer some wine-soaked cheese, it's possible. I'm not saying anything, but it's it's possible. So I, I think the Alyssa Milano comment that the LGBT community, what she did was she copied and pasted. She has a macro. Then whenever she says anything is bad, it affects disproportionately the LGBT and people of color. I I, I would say... The Roe versus Wade decision will save a disproportionate amount of fetuses of color. Do you agree, Rod, on that math? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just it's just obvious, you know, it's not going to be like we said, it's not going to be as easy in certain states or at all in certain states for you to uh, to get an abortion, to have that procedure happen. And so and, and if you don't have the money to travel outside the state, you know, then you're for you're in a sense, forced to have the child unless um, unless we're going to have these organizations and NGOs who start setting up bus rides and stuff like that, like they do with the uh, illegal immigrants. So, Right. Yeah. Or, or it's possible, again, some guys will offer an Uber service out of their Chevy Nova or something like that. Now, do we have any word from M. Reese Emerson yet? Okay, that's great. Okay. And I assume, ask Emrys Everson whether she can. If she got a hard out. She has to leave us sometime because obviously she's starting a little late. So we'd like to have her on for a few minutes. So what Chuck Schumer said is he said this is one of, the, and I'm quoting this fairly accurately. He said this is one of the darkest days in American history. How many, how many dark days are we going to have, Lee? I thought January 6th was our darkest day. Now it's now it's today, June 24th. And then I guess if uh, the Republicans 
take over in the midterm. That's going to be another dark day. And then, you know, it's all these dark days they keep talking about. Yes. And this one's especially dark because some babies are going to be born. They, they must be. OK, uh, so uh, let's let's take a short. Actually, let's just go to Emory's now, shall we? Is that OK? Command Central. So joining us now, Emrys Everson Esquire, a first time guest with me, but she's been on the show before when, when I was in the hospital and Mills Shan hosted. So Emrys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And what should I call you if I don't want to use the whole, is Reese or M? Reese is perfectly fine. Reese, welcome to the show. So you're here on a historic day. The Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade. First, let me get your general opinion as a lawyer on the Supreme Court's decision. Well, to be frank with you, um, their judgment is shaky. Uh, it's overreaching. Um, it's unfortunate. And we knew this was coming. Uh, but the basis of their judgment, especially with the facts of this particular case, um, definitely they created a legal falsehood and they just ran with it. They literally decided the decision that they wanted and then tried to just work backwards. And unfortunately, it fails no matter which way you cut it. Now, what specifically do you think the, the legal falsehood is? Well, first of all, if you look at the case, the case is um, uh, stemming out of a clinic in Mississippi um, that was sued. And the young lady um, that's the person, the, the people involved that are seeking to have an abortion um, wanted one that was prior to 15 weeks. And of course, the law in Mississippi says that you can't um, have an abortion past 15 weeks. The problem is, is gestation. OK, the law is whether or not. Um, at 15 weeks, a baby is viable. And unfortunately, we all know that if you take a fetus, or I'm sorry, not a baby, a fetus is viable. And if you take a fetus uh, that's 15 weeks old and you sit it, you know, in, in just open air, it would, it would not survive on its own without the mother. And so that in itself, this case does not stand. And now, practically, this decision does not make abortion illegal federally, correct? It puts it back to the states. Correct. So it basically, Alito, what Judge Alito wanted to do was uh, send it back to each state to decide for themselves whether or not they believe um, abortion should be legal. And the problem is, is that we know women will be denied rights in a multitude of states. There's actually trigger legislation um, in probably a good 15 states that as soon as this decision is rendered, um, women will not be allowed to have abortions in certain states. And if they want them, they would have to travel to get them, which also could then be a, a, a matter of criminal issues, depending on uh, what that state legislates. Now, let's hear what the president said. Command Central, let's go to first clip. And let's hear what the president said after his decision officially came down. Because, of course, this, this does this, does what they decided actually decided what was announced today, did that differ at all from what you've seen from what was leaked, Bruce? Well, I mean, there was variations, yes. There, there were some variations from um, the decision from um, or the, the leak that happened a month ago. And that was probably because the decision was being edited at the time, right? Correct. A any major differences 
like like big ones? Well, I think the good thing is is that we knew this was coming. Um, essentially, women's rights organization, reproductive rights organizations, knew to expect. We knew to expect a change. We knew that they wanted to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. We knew that they had the votes to do it, and unfortunately. Um, we weren't in a situation where, you know, doing, I guess the organizations did their best to be prepared for it, but truly what can you, you know, do? Um, we, as a, well, as a country, of course, could, you know, ask for a, a constitutional amendment and make it a 28th amendment that every person has the right to control and autonomy over their body. Um, and, you know, that would be on Joe Biden if he wanted to call for a constitutional conference. But um, in all truth, you know, a lot of people are in situations, will, will, a lot of women will find themselves in situations that are just very dire and unfortunate. Well, let's hear what the president did say today about that. Hit it, Command Central. It's not hyperbole to suggest a very solemn moment. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. They didn't limit it. They simply took it away. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans. But they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. Fifty years ago, Roe v. Wade was decided and has been the law of the land since then. This landmark case protected a woman's right to choose, her right to make intensely personal decisions with her doctor, free from the, from the interference of politics. It reaffirmed basic principles of equality, that women have the power to control their own destiny, and it reinforced a fundamental right of privacy, the right of each of us to choose how to live our lives. Now, with Roe gone, let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk. As chairman and ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as vice president and now as president of the United States, I've studied this case carefully. I've overseen more Supreme Court confirmations than anyone today, where this case was always discussed. I believe Roe v. Wade was the correct decision as a matter of constitutional law and application of the fundamental right to privacy and liberty in matters of family and personal autonomy. It was a decision on a complex matter that drew a careful balance between a woman's right to choose earlier in her pregnancy and the state's ability to regulate later in her pregnancy. Now, Emrys Emerson is our guest attorney. And were you impressed? We only have a few seconds here. But were you impressed by the president's reaction to Roe versus Wade being overturned. I think he said he, he called it right. Um, women do have a right to the autonomy of their bodies. Um, it is a right guaranteed by the Constitution. Um, unfortunately, in the framing of the Constitution, certain things weren't extrapolated at that moment, such as um, black people being, you know, right, having citizenship. But those things have come into interpretation based on what the actual uh, core of the Constitution says. And so he's absolutely right. Women do have the right to self-autonomy, just like men do. And Reese, we're out of time for the hour now. When we come back, we'll talk to you a little bit more, if that's okay with you. We're keeping it a little later because we started a little late. 
Emery Severson Esquire is our guest, and we'll talk more about Roe versus Wade being overturned on the backstory. from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of free speech and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. Thanks once again to our guests, special correspondent from the country of Georgia, Mindy Gavicelli in the last hour, and our current guest, Emery Severson, Esquire, an attorney and experienced political person joining us to discuss the overturning of Roe v. Wade later in the hour, Tyler Nixon, to round out the week. And this is the backstory. And so talking to Emery Severson about this. Now, Reese, looking at your uh, background, I noticed that you were with the CBC and you rather famously sued them for sexual sued for sexual harassment over your tenure there. Is that correct? Yes, sir. That's correct. And so tell the story just briefly to explain what your background was with them. Um, during a congressional fellowship that I began at 26 years old while an attorney, um, I had been a licensed attorney for about uh, three years and moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a two-year fellowship. That was to teach me the legislative process. I was placed with a member of Congress who, um, at a point, uh, began to initiate a relationship with me a prof- and professional uh, outside the professional realm of a sexual nature. And I said no, then attempted to basically what I would call run away, move to a new office, Um, to escape being placed with him for the whole 20 months. And when I did that, uh, he made sure that I was terminated for speaking up and running away. Um, And thereafter, I reported it, uh, was placed on a a performance plan and basically punished and made the problem instead of um, addressing the issue. But the guy had been in Congress for well over 30 years, so he was a part of the institution. So it was easier to get rid of me. No, no. And and the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus, you'd agree since you were with them, uh, you know this, they're one of the most powerful political groups uh, in D.C. They're very powerful. Would you agree with that? They should be. They're in a position to be. They're in a position to wield power. They're in a position to speak truth to power. They're in a position to advocate on behalf of their constituency. Do they? Are they? I wouldn't agree with that. No, I agree with you. Um, one thing I noticed a few years ago when I was dealing with the CBC a little bit in the Pigford case, when I was reporting on that, and it's changed a little bit because of Tim Scott, but the CBC at that time took a position when it was mostly Southern Democrats who had been there for decades, mostly Southern Democrats from rural parts of the country. 
there were no members of the CBC who were pro-life. Every, every single one of them took a pro-choice position. And I thought that was surprising because I think if I say that there's a diversity of opinion among black folks and it tends to divide among rural and urban lines, a lot of rural black people are pro-life. You know, people from Southwest Georgia or other places like that, they tend to to be pro, pro-life. Would you agree, Reese? You know, I can't say that there is a monolith of black people. I, and I'm, I'm always the person to say that you cannot do that. What I will say is that in the black belt, in very religious places, um, you know, in the southern region, uh, there are people who very staunchly hold on to the principles of the Bible and Christianity. And because of that, they are staunchly against um, abortion. And, and so I know that to be true. Yeah. And I agree with what what you said. I'm not saying every everybody's if you're from Southwest Georgia or whatever, it's 100 percent. Nothing. You're right. Nothing's 100 percent. But I always but but there are plenty of people who are clearly, like you say, from a religious background and are against abortion. And I always found it weird that they had no representation at all in the CBC. There was not one representative from a rural area who took that viewpoint. Well, I have to make it clear that the CBC is predominantly um, beholden to the Democrat Party. So if you're a member, I mean, if the the entity is— basically in line in step, lock in step with the uh, platform of the Democratic Party and they vote in that um, alignment, then you're not going to get very many people, if any, who are willing to defect. No, and and, and I agree uh, there, there, completely agree. And you've heard the phrase, of course, absolute power, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts. Corrupts, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you think that was part of the problem in the CBC is because they had so much potential power for so long, they were able, it corrupted them somewhat, the power that they had potentially? I can't even blame it on the power. What I'll blame it on is that instead of they, here's what, here's how I'll put it. They got so comfortable sitting at the table and being fed at the table of the uh, the Democratic Party that they forgot who, what their purpose was. They forgot, you know, the, the people like Ron Dellums and, and the people who started the party or the CBC caucus, what their mission was. The mission was to advocate for the interest of their constituencies who happened to be predominantly black and across the country. And that was lost when they became beholden to the Democratic Party. At the end of the day, black people have not received fair treatment or the advocacy that they deserve from the Democratic Party. That's not to say that they're going to receive it from the Democrats. What black people must, in my opinion, come to the realization of is that it, it, the truth of the matter is that black people have no friends. You have no true friends in, in uh, the Democratic Party or the Republicans. And so you just have to align yourself with whatever party has your interest at heart at that moment. But instead of doing that, the Democrats align themselves with 
I mean, the, the CBC aligned itself with the Democrats and now they're beholden to them. So it's not about them being so um, about power, um, you know, kind of causing them to be defective. It's really just a matter of them not fulfilling their purpose and mission and getting too close and too chummy with one side of the aisle versus the other versus advocating for their interest at all times. And would you say that that applies to other people, too? Because I'll tell you, as a white person, I it's the same. A lot of people I talk to and they don't think of it in terms of race, but they think of it as the government Democrats or Republicans don't care about them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And a lot of people vote against their interests, especially um, as you would call rural white Southerners. They oftentimes vote against their interest. And uh, now what did you, uh, I won't say taking on the CBC, but to some extent doing something, obviously they didn't want you talking about your experience. What did you learn from going up against a very powerful, very established political organization? I learned that the truth will set you free but it's one of the most expensive prices that you'll have to pay. And at some point, you have to realize, kind of like Frederick Douglass, that freedom is worth your life. Um, And it's really that serious. It's a life-or-death situation, and you have to decide how much your freedom is worth for you. Um, It wouldn't have worked for me to just remain silent, to not stand on the principles of truth. It would have eaten my soul. And so because of that, I decided to stand up and speak the truth and and advocate for it years before the Me Too movement. I wrote my book in 2014. I came out in 2015, uh, years before there was a hashtag Me Too. And um, when the fanfare came, you know, my story was swept under the rug to to an extent. But for me, it was the freedom of of speaking up and standing on that. I wasn't raised to um, have to lay on my back to get ahead in life. I was taught that my law degree, even though I got it, I earned a law degree at 21, it was equal to the congressman's, you know, that he had the same degree that we had the same degree and that I should be judged on the work that I did rather than uh, being someone's, you know, uh, sex partner or or concubine, in-office concubine. I wasn't willing to do that. Now, I'm curious about what you just said, only because uh, I I started college when I was 15 so how did you happen to get your law degree at 21? Okay. Well, and I, I, I'm sorry. I was 22 when I finished law school and I passed the bar at 23. Um, well, close I, enough. <laughs> I, started law, I started undergraduate at 17 and I was a sophomore when I started because I had taken AP classes in high school and summer, I'd actually taken summer school college classes in, in high school. Um, so I started as it was sophomore credits. And so in three years, I was able to complete my bachelor's. Uh, then I started law school at 20 and I finished in two years. So in December of, uh, December of 2008, I was 22 years old and I then took the bar in February of 2009 and I passed that May. So at May, uh, May of two, um, May of 2009, I was 23 years old and a licensed attorney. That's fantastic. And and 
so so I asked this uh, again, just based on my experience. Did you ever experience a lot of people who didn't graduate college young or go to college young? I didn't graduate. I just went. But uh, they don't understand that sometimes in my experience, I've talked to other people who went young, younger. It puts a weird pressure on you younger. Did you ever feel like at like age, I'm making this up, 25 or 26, that you should have done more? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's kind of the funny thing. It's it's almost it was a slap in the face when I got there and they said, oh, well, you're you're not really being sexually harassed. You just made this up. You were just here for uh, opportunity. You were here trying to meet a man. You were here trying to uh, seduce the congressman. And I'm going, no one who's worked as hard as I have for as long as I have academically just wants to sleep their way to the top. I've been using my brain all this time. Why would I stop now? You get what I'm saying? Um, yes, absolutely. So, but here's, here, here's the funny thing. When you reach 25 or 26 and you've been fired from the job of your dreams, the carpet has been pulled out from under you, you feel like you have nothing. You feel like you're at rock bottom and you're a failure. Imagine having a law degree and thinking you're a failure in life because I had such high expectations for where I was supposed to go and how far I was supposed to get using my intelligence. And I had no idea about this real world out there where, you know, there's an old boys club. I actually just watched the movie Bombshell last night uh, where the women went up against um, the, the people at Fox News. And I, you know, I think it's unfortunate when we teach young people academically their potential, but we don't give them the skill set to navigate the real world. We don't tell them about the monsters under the bed or the trolls under the bridge. As a young woman, someone should have pulled me to the side and said, listen, you know, especially the CBC, listen, you're an okay looking girl. When you get in here, there's a way that these people are used to playing the game. And if you're not interested, let me help you navigate that. And because those are not the tools that are given to young people, we fall into these traps of being bewildered and caught off guard when our, a seven-year-old congressman wants to sleep with us. It doesn't compute. Our brains can't process it. We're like, what the heck is going on? We're in the twilight zone. And, and let me also ask you about, is there another pressure you face as a woman? Because tell people what, what your website is, by the way. The website for um, is theblushproject.org, theblushproject.org, which is the nonprofit organization. Um, and then my personal website is M, as in Mary, reeseeverson.com, mreeseeverson.com. So what I'm curious about is you had this uh, action against him on sexual harassment. Is there any pressure on you to be plain? What I mean by that is because you said you were harassed, is there any pressure on you to not, because you're obviously a be very beautiful woman and you obviously know how to do your makeup and and dress to make yourself more attractive. Agreed? That's not, you're, you're not insulted by that. I'm not insulted by that. And you obviously I was a, like- I was a duckling growing up. So to actually be, you know, learn that I was attractive was actually surprising to me. I've been a nerd, a duckling my whole life. So, and-, and 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 you like your bags. I've noticed that too. Yes. <laughs> but is there any pressure on you to not put on makeup, to not dress, to not look good, in other words? 
I'm so glad you asked this question. And this is actually the print, the very first chapter in my first book. I went into the issue of what I was taught growing up. I grew up in the church, so kind of like the rural rural people in the Bible Belt. I grew up in the Pentecostal church where women weren't really allowed to wear makeup, where they had to wear long skirts and be covered up. And I went to a church full of men who, you know, some of them had an appetite for younger women, and no one explained to me that there were predators. They simply said, oh, you can't wear that. Oh, you have to cover up. So when I got to D.C., the, the same information was shared with me, cover up. So I didn't wear the makeup. I didn't wear the lashes. I didn't wear or the ma- heavy mascara or the ex, you know long hair. I would pull it up in a bun. I would wear blazers and you know that were two sizes too big to cover my bosom. Uh, I did what I could to minimize and make myself as unattractive as possible. Here's the problem. The congressman that I worked for was a nerd, I I would dare say sapiosexual type or just, you know, really big into um, statistics and numbers and facts and all that stuff. So he wouldn't have been able to carry on with a woman who was this, you know, supermodel type. He did find the nerd in me, the plain Jane in me attractive. So I was exactly the type, you know, once I stripped down, I was exactly who he was looking for, right? And so— The problem is, isn't to strip yourself and be somebody else. What I learned is to go full force and be yourself um, and don't hide yourself. As a woman, I wouldn't have been able to move forward in this new path that opened up to me of radio and TV had I still been trying to hide myself in a box that didn't fit. I love fashion. I love makeup. I love hair. I love the glamour of it all. I love, you know, the the, the old Vogue magazines they used to send and Harper's Bazaar. I love all the fashion and that stuff. So don't hide who you are because you'll never get to where you're supposed to be if you try to be, put yourself in a box and hide and become someone else. And that's why I actually mentioned you like your bags, because you you make a point of you like your bags. You like a fancy, nice looking bag, right? Especially if it's on discount or sale. Yeah. No. And and a woman, if, you know, was it benefit you if you can't like bags, for instance, a woman has a right to like bags and not be sexually harassed. And any man who who doesn't learn just because a woman knows how to put on makeup doesn't mean she wants to sleep with you, needs to go back to their mama and learn a couple of lessons about women. Agreed? Well, the truth is I was, I was still 26 years old. I was still the age a woman should be um, opening her eyes and paying attention to the men to see which one is a good husband. So just because— I was, you know, really, and my grandmother later told me, this is the time you should be open to knowing who your husband is. I shouldn't hide myself from the potential suitors that could be my husband. But at the same time, I have a responsibility for how I show up in my workplace. So there's a duality there. You can't just come in wearing a nightclub dress with everything showing and hanging out and want to be treated with a modicum of respect. It, there's an expectation there. There, you know, if you show up in a fire suit, it, what it is, if you show up in a fireman's suit to a, a burning building, they're going to tell you to run in and put out the fire. Well, if you show up dressed like you're there and and you are not, you know, able, not a person who um, who comports herself respectfully. 
sorry, if you show up as a person who doesn't know how to comport herself um, in a professional manner and you look like you're just ready to just go party and, and live a wild life, then you have to be responsible for what happens when that shows up. But at the same time, men do have to respect the fact that if I'm not interested in you romantically, I have a right to say no. And I still have the right to carry on with a professional relationship and be respected for my mind if I'm not interested in in taking things further than a professional relationship. Now, let's bring it back in a weird segue to Roe v. Wade from there. And this is asking you to prognosticate because no one knows. But how do you think the culture is going to deal with this decision? Do you think we're going to see... Undoubtedly, we're going to see abortions go down somewhat, just somewhat. No, no, no. What you're going to see are medical abortions go down. I don't think abortions going anywhere. It's just a matter of what procedure and method will be done and used. Remember, we came out of the 70s. I mean, or the, the, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, people had to do what they had to do. And we will definitely go back to that. And so are you saying with the the day, morning after pills? Morning after pills, abortion, um, and, you know, women, I, you're still, you're actually allowed to legally order the pills for a medical abortion, um, which is the, the pill that you can take that will discharge the pregnancy. You can order those online and have those at home. So we're going to continue to see abortions. We, they just might not be in the clinic. And do you think that's a potential legal battle we're going to see? Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but women are going to travel. I watched a documentary the other night about how women in the 70s had to fly from their state to another state to get an abortion. We're going to see that. There will be people traveling uh, many states over and, and driving from Mississippi to New York or, or, or where have you to be able to access reproductive rights. I mean, in health uh, access, that's going to happen. And so you 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 don't predict uh, the a change in the the rate of abortion at all from this? No, no. Wherever there is a person backed into a corner into a decision that they don't want to make, you will find a person trying to find their way out of it. There is nothing that will stop a person who does not want to carry a child. You can't there's no legislation that's going to force them to do it. And do you think Democrats or Republicans, they both make, it's fair to say, a huge amount of money from fundraising through being pro or anti-abortion? Absolutely. Do you think there's any chance that the political parties are going to be able to separate themselves from that money by turning down the rhetoric somewhat? No, I I absolutely think that um, there's so much money to be made in this topic and in this issue. Um, There's so many. I mean, if we just think and and watch the number of people who have been elected in Texas, even for non, you know, uh, legislative seats, right? Non-legislative seats. So they're not congressmen or senators. They could literally be the person over the water department. But as long as they say that they're pro-life, they're going to get elected in Texas. I mean, this is a an issue that is a it's catapulting people into you know positions of power, and there's so much money to be made in the uh, political uh, forum because of it. It's not going anywhere. And so, final question, and thank you for holding on for a little bit. And it's been great to talk to you. 
on the backstory. But Reese, how do you think this is going to affect politics? How do you see, do you see the landscape changing at all? I am very, 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 I'm a hundred percent sure that you are going to have a groundswell of activity politically that we haven't had in a very long time. Women will rise. Um, we have been able to rest on our laurels and on the shoulders of the glorious items and the women who advocated for um, our right to choose. Back, you know, 30, we, we were born into this right, and so we only know what it is for the right to exist. Once you began to explain to people, yeah, that right's gone in your state. There are no abortion clinics here. You will literally have to travel to, uh, you know, five states over. Things will change drastically. People will get the message. They will realize that their lives have shifted and that their rights as a, as a human being and a, and a citizen of this country have changed, they will respond. There will be an uprising of women um, active in politics like we have never seen. So, Emrys Everson, thanks so much for staying with us, and thanks for the conversation. We'd love you to be back on the show sometime, if you can make it. Thanks so much for the conversation and your prognostication. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to Tyler Nixon on The Backstory. backstory in the final half hour of the week in a historic week big Supreme court decision on roe versus wade coming down this morning and by the way we are on the radio on 105.5 fm am 1390 but rod great talking to emory severson great conversation you agree 100 very interesting no, and, and again, I say we're bastion of free speech because I don't agree with her on many points, but I love having a conversation anytime. I think she represents a lot of people out there. Now, I, I, I think what she said at the end, that you'll see a new generation of women rising politically. I think that's also true, Rod. Of Republican women, because here's what's different now. I think that now abortion's been illegal. I'm starting to see some women who are in their 30s or 40s or 50s, and abortion's been legal all the time they were fertile. Does that make sense? In fact, let's welcome our friend Tyler Nixon. Tyler, how you doing? Lee, good to be with you as always. How are you? Good, and good to have you on this historic day that there's a lot of nonsense being talked. Have <laughs> you noticed that? All the garbage, like Biden, Schumer, Pelosi, you can't even listen to them, can you? No, I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, there, there's, no, there's no longer any real honest discussion or debate anymore. It's just they're extremely hyperbolic, defamatory propaganda and, and, and complete distortions of reality. That's all you get from them. 
I mean, the Democrats, uh, you know, if they actually believe this delusional world they construct as being the, uh, you know, what, what their opponents are, what the status quo is, what the people think, I mean, they are headed for uh, an apocalyptic November this year and, and deservedly so. So now here's what I've been saying. I noticed a few years ago, I started talking to some women who were Republican women who were in their 40s or 50s. And Roe v. Wade had been the law of the land their entire life as a fertile woman. And I know a certain type of woman, and I'll try to describe it. They were women in their 40s and 50s, and they were Republican, and they were pro-life. But in their life somewhere, maybe when they're in their 20s, they were pro-choice, and they may have even had an abortion right at a young age. They may have even had an abortion in their 20s or 30s. Then they got older and had kids and became pro-life because they realized when they had a few kids, I, I wouldn't have aborted any of these kids. You see what I'm saying? So their 40s and 50s, and they, in, in their... They had a more nuanced view on abortion, and they talked about how awful it was phys physically as a procedure. And now, because abortion's been legal, they're not afraid to stand up and say, I had an abortion earlier, and it wasn't awesome. It wasn't all it's cracked up to be, and I wouldn't do it again, and I wouldn't advise other women. Have you do you know what I'm talking about it all time? No, I absolutely do. I think, in fact, uh, you know, some of the more uh, really um, zealous, for lack of a, I guess, a better term, of the pro-life folks are uh, people who women who had abortions or abortion or, or abortions or maybe were exposed to it in some way and saw the horrors of it. I mean, look at Jane Roe. Uh, was her name Norma? Was it McCorvey? No, I, I can't remember her precise name she had an, the woman who's you know the case is named after uh had obviously had an abortion and or was you know had, had issues with getting an abortion and she became a born-again christian who's been pro-life just about almost ever since um and you know it, it what it reflects is the fact of first of all this entire industry and let's not kid ourselves abortions an industry uh it preys upon young you know vulnerable women uh, who you know get into these situations um, and don't think they have any alternative, and and they don't realize the physical, emotional, and spiritual impact that that you know aborting your child has. And I don't think they, and I think so many of them regret it the rest of their lives. And many, as you noted, become pro-life and even become pro-life activists. But what even more reflects as we would see with the likes of, say, a Kermit Gosnell and these other pro-abortion, I mean, not just, they're not just pro-choice, they're pro-abortion uh, lunatics, is their total indifference to human life. And whether that be a life before it's, uh, you know, uh, before it comes from the womb, uh, when it's, in, you know, in, in gestation, or while, frankly, you know, it's a, whether it's a 20-year-old woman who, whose life is going to be, uh, you know, Know, forever scarred, and if if not, she will be forever scarred um, for being sort of you know get, having this such easy option to terminate life to, to end life um, you know that was created that was uh, you know by God's design and 
I mean, I, you know, I like to think that, uh, God has a, as a plan for all, you know, all life that he creates. And, uh, you know, he, that, that even, even aborted, uh, fetuses, you know, even, even, uh, the little spirits that never make it into the world, you know, that's, that's part of that plan that, that God keeps them close to, you know, I mean, that, that they're looked after in this, in the, the spiritual world, because obviously we have monstrous, I mean, beyond the fact of, of what horrific, just a horrific thing it is, the fact that it's so cynically exploited and used by the Democrat party and the leftist, uh, and the godless communists, for their own political advantage, to try to stir up uh, uh, support for their um, for their godless cause, and to stir up hate against people who dare stand for life, um, it's just despicable beyond belief, and it just really epitomizes what these people are all about. Now, Tyler, let me give you a conspiracy theory in two parts. The first part is somewhat I I, I don't even think it's conspiratorial that the leaker who we have not found yet, and the decision is out on Roe v. Wade, and the leaker did not fail, did not do anything, did, failed utterly. Conspiracy theory number one is that the leaker is actually Sonia Sotomayor, that is not a, a lower-down person, but that is actually a Supreme Court justice. And that may be one reason they haven't, quote-unquote, found the leaker. So yeah, how am I doing so far? Found the leaker. It, it's plausible, although I think there's, I think, uh, I, God, his name escapes me, he's um, an attorney. He, he had given a more plausible account, although it could, it would have had to involve probably multiple people, though. If even it was Sonia Sotomayor, I think there would have been underlings involved. Now, now here's, and I agree with that, but here's part two of this conspiracy there, that Whoever was the leaker on that decision on Roe v. Wade also leaked yesterday's decision on guns to Republican senators. And that's why they were able to put together a coalition so quickly, because they had advanced word that the leak wasn't done to the media, but the leak was done to senators, that someone in the Supreme Court gave them the heads up, so able to put together this thing. Against the filibuster, how's that sound, Tyler? I think I think that's very plausible. I think Washington exists on leaks and back-channel information, and the Supreme Court is no exception. I mean, I think in terms of leaking actual decisions, opinions, as it was done with the uh, this this new news decision on abortion, that's that that was an exception. Obviously, that went beyond simply just leaking the uh you know what where the justices are le- what they think is going to happen you know and what the what the more likely outcome is but yeah i mean let's face it like i said it's someone named nixon i mean <laughs> it's all about leaks it's all about that inside information and getting the advantage from it and certainly those on the left uh you know who see these decisions going against their interests or their agenda i don't think they have any problem but they have no ethics i mean they would violate ethics will violate law if it serves them. And that conspiracy theory, Tyler, was a setup. It was an act of love for you. Because now I'm going to throw you not just a softball, but a T-ball. I've set up. Ready? You're going to hit this one out of the park. I know where you're going with this one. What did you think of the Republican senator's decision 
yesterday to forgo the filibuster and pass what's this bipartisan gun legislation. Tyler Nixon, what do you think? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, That's I, a I, T-ball, I mean, right? Yeah, no, I mean, look, the list is like, it almost makes me sick to read the names because they're the same cast of characters who undermine Trump and were in bed with the Democrats for, for his entire presidency. Uh, I mean, Tillis, Burr, Burr on intelligence, the Intelligence Committee was just, it was monstrous what he let the Democrats get away with in the first two years of the Trump presidency. Sat on the side, sat by. Not well, forget well, Cornyn and Graham. Oh, well, of course. No, I mean, all of them, all of them, frankly. Murkowski, uh, Collins, you know, they're useless. They are Democrat light when it comes to, to the core issues. And I, but I will say, um, look, I mean, we didn't get an, an AR, you know, 15 or a quote assault weapons ban. I don't see anything that can't be dealt with, uh, you know, well enough once, once November rolls through and, and, you know, we see some changes. I mean, look, 94 was much worse, frankly, for, uh, gun ownership and gun rights than, than I see this year as ever shaping out, uh, shaking out. Um, you know, we were stuck with an assault quote, you know, a ban of almost an entire category of firearms. They didn't, they didn't get that around this time. I mean, I think, you know, they, they maybe perhaps this red, red flag nonsense empowered that possibility with, you know, but I think people are able to discern, uh, jurisdictionally, like where they want to live and whether they want to live in a place. I mean, if, you know, let's face it, the places that are going to enforce red flag quote unquote laws are already the places that have restrictive gun control uh, or gun laws. And I think people recognize that, whereas, you know, sorry, a blanket uh, ban on entire, you know, types of weapons. I mean, that, that, that was where, you know, I was concerned because I think, I think that's what they, of course, wanted. I mean, I didn't see anything that stuck out to me as like, whole, you know, like it's time to man the ramparts. This is crazy. I, like as I have in previous years, uh, like I said, 94 um, with Clinton, with the assault weapons ban and all that. Um, so, you know, look, these, this is to be expected. And, you know, you look at those are the those are the quote leaders, the Republican in the Republican Senate, you know, the chair, like Graham Burr, like I said, his intelligence uh, committee chair. And it's just it's it's appalling because they are so utterly out of step with the Republican Party. It's like, what who do you people represent? I mean, you absolutely do not represent uh, what what mo- probably 90 percent of the grassroots of the party feel and think on this issue. And, you know, just the fact of handing the Democrats any sort of uh, brooking, any sort of compromise with them. I mean, Chuck Schumer is a monstrous demagogue. Uh, is one of the worst that's ever disgraced the Senate. And for, for these uh, you know, for McConnell, or, 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 I mean, this is this is stampede politics, and the Republican, uh, the Rhino ilk, have always always capitulated to it, and that's what makes them rhinos, frankly. Uh, it makes them appalling sellouts uh, because they don't want to be they don't want to be denigrated, and they don't want those mean, big, bad Republican or conservatives. So they sell us out, and it's about time we have a majority within the majority, as you and I were discussing, I think, the last time I was on, and finally be rid of Mitch McConnell. I mean, my God, just in terms of his age and his acuity, I, I just don't – I've never – It's this is such a reactionary throwback to the old days of these – you know, the, the bosses on Capitol Hill when you had like the Tip O'Neill types and uh, 
you know, the Mike Mansfields and where they just ran the agenda and, and, and the, the, the Republicans were essentially just their Republicans were negligible, but their own their own party members were essentially just uh, like chits on the on the uh, on the game board. And that's got to go. I mean, we have enough discerning, I think, Republicans now um, who are not on board with this, like the establishment at any cost oh, we have to protect the sanctity of the Senate and all this. I mean, thank God, at least they have kept the filibuster because I'm sure the Democrats would you know, heave that and did and would heave that over the side as it suits them. Um, so, there, you know, I guess there, there are things that McConnell has been useful for. I think he's kept the pressure on with that. And he did certainly good, good work to some extent with uh, the federal judges. But beyond that, it's like, the, you know, it's, it's like Lindsey Graham is a perfect example of this type of uh, capitulation. When Right at the outset of the Russian collusion hoax, rather than saying what everyone knew, that this was a complete fabrication, a Democrat delusional, malicious, delusional fantasy designed to defame Donald Trump and anyone around him. Rather than say that, they had to say, well, yeah, because because because, of course, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia on the uh, I mean, they're, they're in lockstep with the Democrats on this, that you have to demonize Putin and demonize Russia. I mean. It was that, you know, not that not that there was no Russian collusion. This is insanity. This is completely fabricated. If anybody was colluding with them, it was the Clinton campaign. No, it was, well, there was definitely Russian interference in our elections. But, you know, Trump wasn't part of it. I mean, give me a break. That's selling. It's selling this is what they do. They sell out half the argument before we've even had an investigation or a chance to rebut it. And it's just undermining of everything. And this is why we have the Democrats in control of Congress and, frankly, the presidency. Now, Tyler, I would say, especially with these past two, the gun one yesterday and the abortion one today, we're in a new era where federalism is important, not just as a political concept, but as a practical matter. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You specifically need to just – so go – you see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I think a lot of people are going to practically say – and, and, yeah, the, and that's what, this, take, you know, this is what, take, like, this is the best compromise. I mean, conservatives at minimum, look, we're not looking as, as libertarians, conservatives to have this unilateral, unitary, national dictate uh, dictatorship, basically, where it's like, this is what the Democrats want. They want everything to fall under the auspices of federal power, where they get to mandate everything the same way for everybody. One size fits all, no matter what it is, healthcare or just generally, you know, uh, uh, regulatory system. And the whole point of our, of our system way was created was to have the ability for people to vote with their feet, you know, different experiments in Republican government throughout the country. Uh, you can, hey, if you don't like it here, there's, you have an opportunity to go elsewhere and you have the ability to change it within the overarching, you know, system that we have of, of a allegedly, you know, federal republic, a constitutional republic, although, uh, you know, I question. I mean, the, the, the federal power has usurped so much state power that, you know, decisions like this. And this is why it's crazy that, that uh, you know, these people, again, they're so absolutist on abortion. It's like no one took away any right. You can still go to California and get abortion all. I'm sure. And you will forever be able to get it all day long. But those communities and those states that have a different view of things. Uh, and aren't going to be dictated to by some sort of national tyranny, judicial tyranny, no less, uh, as that decision was, Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, have the ability to have. And then people can reflect their values. But it's, again, 
the Democrats are so unilateral and absolutist about their uh, moral superiority, while they are frankly the most degenerate people you'll ever find, that they refuse to allow. I mean, they, they don't want federalism. They want to be able to tell everybody what to think, how to live, you know, and that's the end of it. So it's just a joke that they can't even comprehend the fact that abortion is not been, you know, suddenly made illegal anywhere. Nobody's nobody's right has been taken away. If there ever was one, the whole right was invented. Um, you know, but that being said, I mean, look, this is just I, I, these are two decisions that are just stunningly. I, I, and I felt I think I even said it on the show, Lee, that I felt the Supreme Court was going to re- look at the the absolute run amok nature of Democrat unilateralism, uh, Democrat, uh, you know, uh, whatever, the, just the complete uh, authoritarianism of their one party rule. And it's going to issue some decisions that are going to really blunt that, you know, particularly in areas of hot button issues like guns, especially on guns. And that's exactly what they did. And I, I'm thrilled. And, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, notwithstanding Kavanaugh, the Bushy, who is, you know, to be expected, but you know, thank God we've got that core, at least five of them, um, who who know and understand the larger framework of this Constitution and of the, what constitutes our government and, and our way of life and our system in the United States, you know, which is that th- these are not rights that are conferred or diced out and sliced out by government or whatever have you. These are rights that are simply recognized by a sovereign and a sovereign that does not recognize these as not just civil or constitutional rights, but as human rights is not a legitimate government and does not constitute our government and, and the representatives of the people that we were, uh, you know, that we were promised in this charter and that we have a right to demand. And Tyler, you use the word authoritarianism. And I want to play a clip now. This is from Tucker Carlson. He's talking to Jeffrey Clark, who's the assistant U.S. attorney who a pre-dawn raid at his house. And I want to play this clip. Is this as frightening to you as it is to me? Hit it. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. This is a, a, an almost, I mean, this is a Soviet account, really. So tell us what happened and why. It is, and good to be here, uh, Tucker. So yesterday at about just before 7 a.m., there was loud banging at uh, my door, insistent banging. So I just rushed down as fast as I could. I you know, quickly figured out you know, that there were agents there. I opened the door and asked for the courtesy to be able to put some pants on uh, and was told, no, you got to come outside. So uh, I came outside. They swept the house. Eventually, they let me go back inside and uh, put the pants on. But uh, then, you know, by my count at one point, uh, you know, 12 agents and two uh, Fairfax County police officers uh, went into my house, uh, searched it for three and a half hours. They even brought along something, Tucker, I've never seen before uh, or heard of, a uh, electronic sniffing dog. And uh, they took all of the electronics from my house. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't blame the, the agents. I think, it, you know, what you're talking about in terms of weaponization is really about uh, who's pointing the agents and telling them what to do, Tucker. So Peter Strzok, who worked at the FBI, is effectively a criminal, in my view, never really punished, sent out a tweet today mocking you and gloating over the fact that the Biden administration stole your cell phone and will now be reading all of your private messages. I mean, at what point can we say the Department of Justice, where you once served, is a political instrument? It's completely out of control. 
Yeah, I, I think this is highly politicized and it's also part, uh, Tucker, uh, if you didn't know it, of a nationwide effort yesterday. There were multiple states where multiple people were roughly simultaneously uh, you know, rated for their electronic devices. Uh, and that obviously requires a high level of coordination. And look, um, with the hearing uh, that was pointed at me and, and targeting me today uh, with, uh, you know, the, the uh, special audience member of Sean Penn. So, you know, this is Hollywood, uh, you know, the, the very next day, you know, it, it looks highly coincidental. And Tucker, you know, I just don't believe in coincidences. So, you know, Chris Ray, of course, who runs FBI. You probably know Merrick Garland. He's been around Washington a long time. Both of them have decided to pervert and corrupt our most basic institutions on behalf of Joe Biden. Did you think they were capable of doing that when you worked there? I argued in front of uh, Merrick Garland. I got a very uh, respectful hearing. I think uh, I was going to win that case, but we wound up actually uh, settling it in the shadow of what you know everyone assumed was going to be a victory. Sometimes that happens in financial cases. And uh, Chris Ray was with me in the Justice Department. He was just in the criminal division back in Bush 43. So I do uh, know both of them, and you know I, I just think we're living in a in a era that I don't recognize. And increasingly, uh, Tucker, I, I don't recognize the country anymore. Now, Tyler, first off, is that as frightening to you as it is to me? Oh, it's appalling. It's beyond disgusting. Um, and frankly, you know, what's been done to, uh, you know, you look at James O'Keefe and, and these are these are these are not apparatchiks, even on the level of the Clinton ilk who are being targeted for this just abusive police state Gestapo style uh, uh, use of our federal law enforcement uh, power. And let me tell you something, people should be going to prison for this type of stuff. And the fact that we used to have Democrats, we used to have Democrats who would be, no matter how liberal they are, were, uh, no matter how distant and apart they were from any Republican or conservative would be appalled and would absolutely lambast anything resembling this type of totally fascistic, uh, just, I mean, totalitarian, not even authoritarian, totalitarian abuse of power. Um, I mean, just raw. I mean, this is like, this is Gestapo Nazi style. I mean, there's nothing. Like, they have no legitimate pretext. This is just bullying, intimidation, abuse of power. And Joe Biden should, frankly, I mean, I honestly think people should hang for these types of offenses because you are denying and miscarrying justice. And not only that, you're denying the possibility of justice by the fact of your having co-opted and taken over positions in which we expect people to be servants of justice. Now, one of the reasons it's frightening to me is if that guy is not safe, an assistant attorney general, if that guy, and I've seen him, you've seen him, he's a middle-aged guy. He's no threat to anybody, no threat to anybody, and merely what this was a raid. That was so frightening to me. If that guy's not safe, I think who is safe, Tyler? No, not. I mean, none of us. And 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 the fact that I mean, it's not a matter anymore of just oh, you know, going rifling through your papers or I mean. These people, when they and the electronic aspect of it is very sinister because what people put on their electronic devices nowadays is beyond even what anything could even be said to be in like your books and papers and effects because people dump, you know, there's there's information 
that you can look into in, in people that was never possible in the age, the analog age, when it was just, again, papers and, you know, whatever have you, phone calls up by you know, wire and none of this recorded data that they have now. The data now is so sensitive. And so, I mean, it's far beyond, I mean, anything and, should, and as such should be subject to even more stringent protections than just books and papers, that the notion of books and papers as the constitution sets forth. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very chilling. And that's why they're always, they just want to get in there and they, they walk away with your life basically and leave you with nothing. James O'Keefe and those uh, Project Veritas reporters are still waiting to get their, their uh, devices in there. And Roger Stone, I mean, he never got anything back. What he got back was damaged. And uh, I mean, and, and then they're perusing through everything. There's no way to stop them. They, you know, <laughs> you have to get an ombudsman in there for them to not like going through your most intimate personal uh, communications, having nothing to do with whatever it is they're supposedly investigating. Yeah, you brought up James O'Keefe, of course, and we talked about that earlier this week. Tucker did a big thing last week on Ashley Biden's diary. Now, have you seen Ashley Biden's diary? I have, yes. Okay, you saw that she in her diary, which no one's disputing that is hers, right? No one's saying it's not hers. She said that she took showers that she considered inappropriate with her father, right? Correct. That's what she's... So first off, do you believe, and James O'Keefe, who you mentioned, his home was raided, and there was not even any accusation. He didn't publish that material. But first off, from knowing the Biden family basically your whole life, what do you think of the accusation that we're in the Ashley Biden diary? I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, I don't think it's what I think Joe is clearly, uh, you know, a weird guy. I think he's got some strange habits, but I think it comes down to more than and I'm just you know, people may not want to hear this, but that Ashley Biden was admitting that she said I was boy crazy. And I think she probably went into the shower when her father was showering. I, I don't think it, and then he probably didn't say, no, no, Ashley, you can't be in here. She's, and I think she meant probably inappropriate is what she said. She probably meant it about herself. I don't think she would have ever said that about her father. So that being said, none that, nevertheless, this is not the subject of, this should not be the subject of federal investigations. This is a ludicrous uh, abuse of power again. Um, and I don't know why they make a big deal of it. it, it it's published. I mean, it's out there. I, I, I looked through it and I thought it was very humanizing of her. I mean, I felt like I was sort of invading her privacy in many ways. It's sad. But, you know, these people who dabble in, uh, dabble in, huh, dunk their heads in abuse of power, what do they expect? I mean, you know, but they they benefit from it. So. And, and I, think the, I think the explanation you gave very well could be right. And I agree with you that it was humanizing. But also, yeah, you know, it was not a stolen diary. Do you have a suspicion about, because she left that at a house she was staying at. Do you think, and pure conjecture, do you think Ashley Biden and Hunter Biden, too, actually wanted someone to see that material yeah. and left it behind? Yeah, I think subconsciously anyway. You, you I think I think they just don't care. You know, yeah. they they it's almost like yeah. Yeah. I no, I think I think so. There's some there's an element of that. 
I don't think it's, I don't think it's conscious though. Um, but the fact that who wouldn't, I mean, if you did leave that behind, either they're just very sloppy and reckless or, or I mean, who wouldn't, if you left that behind, be like in a tizzy looking for it, you know, I mean, come on, you write in something every day like that, all your intimate thoughts, please. And then, you know, Tyler, that, that what you just said, we're almost out of time. You were just fairer to Joe Biden than the press has ever been one one hundredth as fair with Donald Trump. It, right. I mean, I like I'm going to try to be honest about it. And sure. No, absolutely. I mean, no, he's never, he's never gotten a fair shake. And frankly, Biden's gotten away with murder. Yes. So, so. And Tyler, as usual, a great conversation with you, Tyler Nixon. Great way to end the week. So many good guests today. Minya Gavishali, Emery Severson, and Tyler Nixon. No call today, but join us Monday on The Backstory.